Pastor Kevin owes me one. <laughs> we continue our series on Ephesians. It's a <clears throat> very tough book to read and to preach on. Tough because it's very dense, dense with doctrine with theology, with, with a lot of thought, especially in the first three chapters. But it's also one of the most inspiring books in the Bible. I like the way someone described it. I know the words may be a bit small. Let me read it out to you. This is um, from uh, one of the Bible teachers from um, Southwestern Baptist School of Theology. This is what it says. The epistle, Ephesians, possesses an incendiary quality. That means it sets things on fire. Right? Incendiary quality. One may reject Christian dogma, but who will deny that a transcendent power gripped the author of Ephesians? Marcus Bath, another Bible teacher, even described Ephesians as a prayer. And indeed, Paul never spoke of God as though he were absent. He lived, preached, and wrote doxologically. That's a big word, but simply means that he lived and preached and wrote this book as though it was a prayer, as though it was a hymn of praise. It contains the most balanced statement of Christian teaching in the New Testament. Paul, the supreme apostolic theologian, provided us the final fruit of his ripened reflections through this remarkable letter. In his other writings directed to specific congregations with urgent pastoral and theological problems, necessity narrowed the focus. In other words, certain th other epistles, other letters that Paul wrote were very specific in what they were trying to do. So, for example, Galatians speaks of freedom and faith. Romans soars to the heights on the theme of righteousness. In Colossians, Written at the same time as Ephesians, Paul magnifies the all-sufficient Christ. But the general letter of Ephesians is Paul's grand summing up of the Christian vision, the most mature and comprehensive of his writings. Two weeks ago, Pastor Kofai introduced Ephesians and spoke from chapter 1 about our position in Christ in the heavenlies and our possessions in Christ, that we are chosen, we are predestined, that God has granted us wisdom and revelation and that He has given us the Holy Spirit as down payment, as deposit for our salvation and our glorious inheritance. And last week, Pastor Chiming shared from Ephesians chapter 2 how we are God's masterpiece, that God has worked in us, for us, and through us. Today, we look at chapter 3. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I... It's okay, I'll read. Faster that way. Faster that way. Okay. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Notice that word again, mystery. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by his spirit. This mystery, same word, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, same word, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart what, over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Oops, sorry. Alamak, give the game away. <laughs> For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power and work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and, forever and ever. So you can understand why the quotation I gave earlier, that this is a very dense book. The chapters that Paul writes, the way he writes it are packed with meaning, with doctrine, with with theology. And so it's very hard to understand and challenging to read. But we can break this passage into three sections, um, which is taken from the title of our sharing this morning, Mystery, Ministry, and Meditation. Mystery, verses 1 to 6. Those of you who are older, or shall we say from the pioneer, or we learn something, Merdeka generation, you remember all the mystery novels we read when we were younger, Annie Blyton. And for the life of me, I didn't realize that Annie Blyton was a lady. I thought it was a guy. Okay, I learned, as I googled it, I learned that she was a lady, a woman. She wrote books like The Famous Five, uh, Secret Seven. Today, adults will be reading modern mystery books by writers like Tom Clancy and Dan Brown. This is for the Mandeka generation. Right? Not for the millennials. Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. You know, they had a TV, they had a couple of movies about him. Some jobs deal with searching out mysteries. Scientists try to unravel the mysteries of the universe. On August 12, 2018, not too long ago, NASA launched the Parker Solar Probe, 
US $1.5 billion spacecraft the size of a car on a seven-year journey to try to study the surface of the sun, a place which is known as the corona, where the temperature can reach 1,400 degrees centigrade. Likewise, doctors try to discover the mysteries of the body. And historians and all those uh, adventure people try to uncover the mysteries of places like whether there was such a city known as Atlantis. We all love mysteries. We like the suspense, the excitement, and we get curious about the answers. Who's the killer? What's the evil plan to conquer the world? Release some deadly virus? Detonate a nuclear bomb? Assassinate Donald Trump? Aside from impeaching him. Oliver Wendell Holmes, senior, lived in the 19th century, was an American physician, a doctor. He was a poet, he was a writer, and the father of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who became a famous U.S. Supreme Court judge. In his clinical research, Holmes, Sr., discovered what he called certain exalted, quote, uh, certain exalted mental conditions that could lead to profound thinking, deep thinking, or at least to the illusion of profound thought. He cited dreams in which the dreamer imagined ideas far better or more beautiful than could ever be consciously created. He studied gifted writers, composers, and how their works of art and music came about after going through such experiences. And eager to experience some exalted mental conditions of his own, Holmes decided to inhale a full dose of a chemical compound called ether. As uh, the doctors will probably know, ether was commonly used as anesthesia for surgical purposes at that time. He was determined, Holmes was determined to put on record at the earliest moment that he regained consciousness, the first thought that came to his mind. So he breathed the gas, he became semi-conscious. The veil of eternity was lifted. The great, the one great truth which underlies all human experiences and is the key to all the great mysteries that philosophy has sought in vain to solve flashed upon me in a sudden revelation. Henceforth, all was clear. A few words that lifted my intelligence to the level of the knowledge of the cherubim. Wow, very the team. When he became somewhat awake and able to move, Holmes dragged himself to the desk and scrawled on a piece of paper this all-embracing truth still glimmering in my consciousness. Ready? A strong smell of turpentine prevails throughout. You see, ether apparently is an alcoholic compound, it's an alcohol compound, and it smells like turpentine. So much for the mystery. A mystery in scripture is not exactly like a mystery in a novel by Dan Brown or Tom Clancy. Or for that matter, the kind of revelation that Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. thought he would receive under the effects of anesthesia. A biblical mystery is a truth that was always present within the pages of Scripture but was just, just hidden. We can call them divine secrets, sacred secrets. God will reveal them in His time but only when He wants us to learn them. What was this mystery that Paul was talking about here? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jew 
and Gentile, non-Jews, one in Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people, we know that, and God gave to them, and to them alone, Israel alone, the benefits of His covenant, His law, His worship, the temple and His promises. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we know that Abraham was told that it was only through Israel, his descendants, that the nations, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, will be blessed. And Christ came for that purpose. Romans chapter 15, verse 8 to 9, Christ became a servant, it's not here, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. This is the mystery of Christ the Messiah. And that was contrary to most Jewish expectations. He came to save both Jew and Gentile and to bind them both into one new people who together inherit the divine promises. And guess what? We're really talking about the church. The mystery of Christ is that in His death on the cross, He purchased not just eternal life for individuals who trust Him, He purchased and formed a new people, a church composed of both Jews and Gentiles, you and I, who are joint heirs of God's promises and beneficiaries of His grace. The church of Jesus Christ, the church that God is building, comprising both Jews and Gentiles, the church where God dwells by His Spirit. You know, I like the way, um, there's a translation called The Message by a Bible teacher known as Eugene Peterson, a pastor. This is what he wrote about, this is how he translated Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I've got it on the slide. God is building a home. He is using us all, irrespective of how we got here, in what he's building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day. A holy temple built by God. All of us built into it a temple in which God is quite at home. You'll read about a church as the body of Christ again in the rest of Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. So this is the great mystery of the gospel. Grand mission, verses 7 to 13. You know, most of us live our lives for, with far too little awareness of the spiritual realities around us. Most of us go through day after day and seldom feel the impact of the magnitude of what we are caught up in by belonging to Jesus Christ and being a part of the church, His body. And we don't take enough time to meditate on how our jobs, our home life, our leisure, our church involvement, how each of these fits into the cosmic significance of the church. And therefore, our lives often lack the flavour of eternity and the aroma of something ultimate. But the mystery is just the beginning. For Paul, this mystery leads to ministry. 
And what is this ministry? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Who are these principalities and powers? These two terms are found together in two other places in Ephesians. One is in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, that probably you are quite familiar with, talking about the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the second occurrence is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And you, Paul says, he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the cause of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The same pair of terms, principalities and powers, occurs in verse 2. But in the RSV, which I'm showing here on the slide, it's translated as the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the principalities and powers of Ephesians 3, 10 are supernatural hosts in league with Satan and have a cosmic influence on the course of world events. They are in people, they are in institutions. And these are the beings to whom the church is to demonstrate what Paul says, the manifold wisdom of God. What is this manifold wisdom of God that Paul is talking about? The wisdom of God is the wisdom to devise a plan of redemption as great as this. A plan to unite both Jews and Gentiles, contrary to all human expectation, by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word manifold is from classical Greek and refers to embroidered tapestry, which can be messy at the back. But, sorry. Messy at the back, the one on the left, but beautiful from the front. Another translation of the manifold wisdom of God is the wisdom of God in His infinite variety. Infinite variety. This is what we are to demonstrate to the principalities and powers. So the wisdom of God is virtually the same as the mystery of Christ revealed in Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. We speak the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery, which God foreordained before the ages for our glory. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Christ crucified for the unification and glorification of Jew and Gentiles in the church is the mystery of God and the wisdom of God. Next question. How are we as the church to make this wisdom known? How are we to demonstrate this wisdom, this manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the high places? The wisdom of a plan is seen by the fact that it works. 
right? If, it's a, if it works, it's a good plan. If it doesn't work, it's a lousy plan. So we show the wisdom of God We show the wisdom of God by showing in the church that it's working. God's plan is working. The death of Christ was not in vain. The death of Christ has reconciled us to God. It has broken down the wall of hostility between Jews, Gentiles, and other races. It has produced one new body, and it has given us the hope of this kindness that He has given us. We show the wisdom of God to the cosmic powers by living this way, in unity, in love and support, in mutual love and support, in not being consumed by petty divisions, in working together in outreach and mission, in supporting and holding up each other. And we show the wisdom of God by being the church of Christ who died to create it. So the church is the cosmic showcase of God's mercy, of His mystery and His wisdom. And if we fail to live as the joyful beneficiaries of His mercy and fail to maintain the unity of the Spirit, we bring reproach. We are embarrassment to God. And we bring reproach upon His wisdom. So we've got a mystery, we've got mission or ministry. The last one is meditation. And the final part of Paul's prayer reaches its climax. In verse 14, Paul says that he prostrates himself before God on his knees with head bowed to the ground. He addresses God as Jesus addressed God, Abba, Father. But it's not only a term of intimacy that we are familiar with from the New Testament. In the Eastern culture, in Eastern culture, the father is the ruler over the family, the one to whom all questions of importance are directed and related, and to whom children, however old they may be, are expected to defer in obedience. When Jews spoke of God as father, they meant that he rules the world and he rules over their lives. And verse 14 says, For this reason, for this reason, for what reason? What reason is Paul talking about? You go back to verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. And he begins chapter 3 with the same few words. For this reason. It's as though Paul starts chapter 3 with the verse, for this reason, in verse 1, and was so seized by his thoughts that he, want, he, went, he wandered off tangent. Then he only comes back to his original line of thought in verse 14. For this reason. You know, this part of Ephesians chapter 3, um, it's a prayer, right? It's a prayer. There are two such prayers in the book of Ephesians. One is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23 that Pastor Kofi spoke on two weeks ago. And that is a prayer for enlightenment. And this second prayer is here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 onwards. It's a prayer for enablement. There's enlightenment and there's now enablement. Let me read those verses for you again from Eugene Peterson's translation of the message, in the message. It's a contemporary translation, so it's, it's got very interesting phrases which 
throw a fresh light on the scriptures. Right? It's not exactly literal sometimes, but it's a contemporary kind of uh, 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 phrasing of, of the text. My response, chapter 3, verse 14, my response is to get down on my knees before the Father. This magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask Him to strengthen you by His Spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite Him in. And I ask Him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all His followers of Jesus, with all followers of Jesus, the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, His Spirit deeply and gently within us. What a prayer. What a meditation. Rich in content, vast in scope, encouraging in His intent. And He speaks of the resources that we can enjoy when we pray. The two parts to this prayer, this portion of Ephesians chapter 3, the first in verses 16 to 17 is for God's mighty empowering by His Spirit in the inner being. And this is spelled out not in terms of charismatic gifts of one kind or another, but as Christ dwelling in us, taking control of us, making Himself at home in us, through faith, so that we will be rooted in love. And the second request comes in verses 18 to 19, and it's a prayer for deep spiritual comprehension in four dimensions. Length, breadth, height, and depth. I mean, you've learned geometry in school, you know there are actually only three, right? Height and breadth, sorry, height and depth are the same thing. But here, there are four, right? The scripture talks about four dimensions. Together with all the saints, this is how we know the knowledge of the love of Christ, together with all the saints. In, in, in Judaism, the four dimensions. It's not quite geometry. The four dimensions, length, breadth, height, and depth, used to speak of God's wisdom. Here in Job chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than show. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. One of the items on my bucket list is to see the Grand Canyon. I haven't. If you Google this um, Grand Canyon, Google or Wikipedia will tell you that it's, it's huge, right? It's, it's, it's one and a half kilometer deep, 30 kilometer wide at its widest point, and almost 450 kilometers long. It will take up to 7.5 quadrillion liters of water to fill it. What's quadrillion? That's 7.5 with 15 zeros, or a million 
billion, a million billion liters of water. How long? How wide? How high? How deep? There's more of God's love than there's water in all the rivers of the entire world. That's why Eugene Peterson labels it the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Or as some of you will recall, the words of the song that we used to sing in the past, an old hymn. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretch from sky to sky. Verse 19 reminds us that knowing the love of Christ, knowing God himself, because God is love, so if you know the love of Christ, you are knowing God. That knowing surpasses all other forms of knowing. I quote hymns, old writers, you know, I'm a romanticist. 16th century Swiss reformer John Calvin, he once said this, Today, all sorts of subjects are eagerly pursued. This is all English, huh? so you, you have to pardon the way it is written. All sorts of the subjects are eagerly pursued. And may I add, for all of us here, or many of us here, coding, entrepreneurship, human behavior, data analytics, AI, biotechnology. But the knowledge of God is neglected. Yet to know God is man's chief end and justifies his existence. Even if a hundred lives were ours, this one aim would be sufficient for them all. Can I ask the musicians to come forward as we prepare to sing the closing song? I'd like to ask uh, all of us here to just maybe bow our heads and close our eyes. What's, what's the application of what we have been talking about this morning? I want to bring all of us back to the second M, which is ministry, mission. You know, God has done a marvellous thing in our lives. Think about the many blessings He has given us out of His abundant love. We are chosen, we are predestined, we are saved by grace through faith, we have received the Holy Spirit as the deposit of our salvation and of the wonderful inheritance He has prepared for us in heaven. We have received revelation of His grand ministry, Jews and non-Jews united in Christ, His body, as the head. And all this has been planned from the very beginning by the power of God, by the wisdom of God. Let's ask ourselves, are we, are we living our lives in such a way that demonstrates that manifold wisdom? Are we living in obedience to God's word? Are we living in purity of thought and action? Are we living in full commitment to His cause, to His purpose? putting aside petty differences among us, carrying the aroma of eternity to those around us and seeking to save the lost and serve the Lord. As our heads are bowed, can I 
just want to give all of you an opportunity, all of us an opportunity to recommit our lives to the Lord again. If you like to do that, can I ask you to just raise your hands and put it down quickly? It's not for me, it's between you and the Lord. By God's grace and enabling, I'd like to pray for you later. Any others? I've seen your hands. Thank you. Any others? You may think that this is such a waste of time, right? Last week, Pastor Chiming asked us to raise our hands, and this week we do it again. Yet our lives remain the same, right? We struggle. We lack commitment. We don't do our quiet time enough. We are poor witnesses. We lose our temper. We struggle with sin. But that's the point, isn't it? The point is that we need to come again and again to God and ask Him for help so that we may be able to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in high places. Any others who wish to? Thank you. I see you. Let's rise to sing this final song and then I'll close in prayer.
Father, you know that it is truly our desire to obey you more fully and to love you more dearly. But you also know, Lord, that we are fumbling and foolish human beings, so often unable to fulfill what you want from us. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we stumble. We thank you for your word in Ephesians chapter 3. How he speaks of this great mystery that you from your from your wisdom have developed and you have brought us into this church and PPH is our family, our home and we thank you that we are part of your body and even though there may be differences from time to time and even though all of us are different in some ways we know that we belong to you Lord Jesus, we ask that you will honour the commitment that is in our hearts for those who have raised their hands and for those who have not but you know us deep inside Lord how we long to be more fully for you so help us Lord Jesus as we move into this coming week grant us your grace in Jesus name Amen Thank you. 